0: Hello, it's your host, Kat Walsh, and you're listening to another episode of Trip On This. This podcast is for mature audiences and is not suitable for young children. Trip On This is intended for entertainment purposes only, and we do not condone the use of illegal substances. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. I had such a good time speaking with my next guest, Andrew D'Angelo. He was just an absolute wealth of knowledge around everything at cannabis activism. He's been working in this space for over 37 years as a leader, creating social change, impacting policy, working with different companies on best practices for coming into the cannabis space. This man knows his stuff around cannabis and how to make right on all of the injustices and the inequities that have also happened around this plant. During this episode, of course, we talk about his own journey and activism, learning about his nonprofit called The Last Prisoner Project, and of course, we talk about the concept Cali Sober. I won't give it fully away since we do talk about it a lot, but Cali Sober is a particular lifestyle that excludes alcohol, but does happen to include other substances. Hint cannabis, psychedelics, you get the picture. Quick thing before the episode begins, if you are not following me on socials, please do so at trip on this underscore pod. Again, that's at trip on this underscore pod for Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and backslash trip on this pod for Facebook. If you are enjoying this show and you want to help support me, please send it out to your friends, your family, your loved ones. It is all incredibly helpful. And with that. Please enjoy this next episode with Andrew D'Angelo. Andrew D'Angelo, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you today.
0: Awesome. You know, as I was just preparing for this interview with you, it struck me that here is a man who is truly living his dream. You're a cannabis lover, you're a cannabis activist, you are a co founder of a nonprofit, you're a columnist. You are using your entertainment and acting background to tell stories around cannabis, to help shift the narrative around the stereotypes. What a life.
1: Well, yes. And I'm now 50 years old in my early 50s. So it took a long time to create this life that I have now. And, you know, there was certainly a fair amount of pain and suffering along the (laughs) way. Uh, So, you know, I'm in a really great place in my work and career right now where I get to live the dream, as you said, and and leverage doing this for a very long time, my entire adult life. And not many people have been in it as long as I have. And my brother, Steve, my older brother, Steve was my guide into cannabis. So I was very fortunate to have that older brother guiding me into the the industry and the movement. It was a movement before it was an industry. Yeah, I
0: would love for you just if you want to go into your background and just take us back a little bit from kind of the genesis, because I know I've had a a chance to just look at your story. And I think the audience is going to learn a lot from your personal story about what the cannabis movement has looked like up until this point.
1: Right. Well, I came of age in the 1980s during the Presidency of Ronald and Nancy Reagan,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they they fought a war against cannabis people. A very effective war. Uh, they were very good at what they did. They were very good drug warriors. They passed urinalysis testing laws that really prevented working people from having a relationship with cannabis for decades, mm-hmm. and it really put us behind the eight ball in a serious way as a movement. Luckily were a persistent, somewhat crazy bunch of characters that uh-huh. got this that got this done. And um, there was a man in San Francisco named Dennis Perone. And Dennis Perone was an AIDS activist and a cannabis activist, longtime trader of cannabis, starting in the 1970s in San Francisco. Mm. And his lover was dying of AIDS. Mm. His lover was dying of AIDS. Wow. The love of his life.
3: Wow. Wow. He
1: was dying of AIDS. And Dennis was a keen observer of people and he was a great humanitarian and when you observe people from a humanitarian lens the way he did you see things that perhaps other people don't see and he was able to see that cannabis was helping his lover deal with wasting syndrome yeah and the quality of his dying Mm -hmm. greatly improved the the experience of dying yeah yeah. Was greatly. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you can improve the experience of dying, but
0: the pain, mitigating fear, maybe just keeping mitigating a, fear. Yeah. I think it's
1: mitigating fear, and and we all we're all dying. Yeah, we're all terminally ill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. all have a very limited time on on this planet and this earth. Mm-hmm. So, Dennis leaned into it when he observed um, what was happening with cannabis and not just his lover, but his entire community uh, benefiting from this plant. So he got active and he started to learn about how laws are passed Mm -hmm. and how initiatives, ballot initiatives, how it works in California. So California has a ballot initiative process. And if you get enough signatures on a petition, just about any issue you, you can get enough signature You can get on the ballot in California. So Dennis did that. He did the hard work of collecting the signatures. First, we did it in the city of San Francisco. Yep. They have a ballot initiative process in the city. So we first legalized medical in the city of San Francisco in 1992. Were you out there? Were you
0: out there in the streets, like collecting signatures? Like, were you kind of on the front lines helping them out?
1: I was, I would say, I was on the peripheral of the front lines because I was still going to college. I I was in. I was in acting school got it, <laughs> at got the, it. that time in San Francisco. That's what brought me to San Francisco. Okay. And then, while acting school was probably not the best choice for my acting career at that time, it did get me to San Francisco, and and meeting Dennis was probably the reason I went there yeah. m- more so than acting school. Although I, after- I'll
0: say to you really quick, I think. I mean, without, without knowing you, I bet a lot of that training being in the performance arts and acting in a position where speaking and being able to express passion and conviction has probably helped you along the way of really being a great communicator for causes that you care about. So, you know, take yourself off the hook. I bet it weaved into the work you're doing beautifully.
1: Oh, yes. Well, that was by design. Uh, (laughs) You know, eventually I realized that the American theater and and the American entertainment industry was not real comfortable with somebody who was advocating for legalization at that time the way I was. So I think people were just stigmatized and Mm -hmm. thought that maybe I couldn't remember my lines or Mm -hmm. show up on time or whatever it was. I actually showed up. I was the first guy there at rehearsal, and I was the last guy to leave. And if you call ACT, they'll confirm that. So I was pretty obsessed with the theater. And then when I learned that I had to choose between a career in cannabis and a career in the performing arts, I decided to walk the cannabis trail. It was Mm
2: -hmm.
1: remarkably, it was the road that was the easiest for me to travel rather than the entertainment industry, which I just felt I was performing for very elite, privileged people, Mm -hmm. and most of them were, you know, in their elder years. And I love performing for our elders and being connected to them, but I I felt really disconnected with my own community and my own movement and my own people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there came a moment where I had to decide what I was going to be and how I was going to do this work in the world. And, you know, it, it did come full circle for me when we were in the thick of running Harborside, we did the first reality TV show uh, on a cannabis company called Weed Wars. Full circle,
0: suddenly suddenly you're in front of the camera. What was it, Discovery? Yeah, Yeah, full full
1: circle. So I was thrilled, you know, the actor in me was really thrilled that someone was pointing the camera at me and and putting me on national television. And my whole team, my whole organization was, was on national television. And it really helped the movement spread across the country that that show I still get letters I still get people coming up to me and saying I was not thinking about getting into the cannabis industry until I saw Weed Wars and now I'm fully in
0: got it was it about I actually never had a chance to see it was it about growers and distribution companies trying to what was the log line of it for those listening and, and that might not know like myself
1: Weed Wars was mainly about our dispensary in Oakland called Harborside. Yep. Uh, so. It was basically an inside behind the curtain look at the day to day operations of running a at that time the highest volume dispensary in the world. Wow. And you know, we were seeing a thousand patients a day on average. Ooh. That's an enormous amount. That's, That's like more an than an enormous
0: Starbucks. amount. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's like more than Starbucks. So we had to figure out how to deal with all those people coming in in a good good way and and make their experience good. And sometimes people had to wait 15 or 20 minutes to get their medicine. And we had to create that 15 or 20 minutes being engaged and not bored out of your mind waiting for in a line and being really pissed off that you're waiting in a line. Yeah. You know, we all have to wait in lines in this world, and it's not a pleasant experience. So we Too bad you couldn't
0: to- pass out weed to make the time just you know
1: like a little better. <laughs> just kidding. Well, we actually did. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> medical. In the medical program under California, we were allowed to do that. Oh we my allowed- god,
0: perfect! You're like, Shh, it's gonna be a while, but here's an edible. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Now we were mindful of dosage and we gave people micro doses and that sort of thing but yeah if you were waiting in line a really long time and I was down a couple staff members we'd throw in a free joint just to make you feel a little bit better here's a joint you know go smoke it I'm sorry wait in line you know and so we did that sort of thing you can't really do that in the same way under the prop 64 framework unfortunately got it Um, but but that's i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the framework uh, in our conversation but yes we were able to not only give patients free medicine but we gave the needy and poor people free medicine we had a care package program and we also had a program where people could write letters to cannabis prisoners and we would in exchange for writing a letter we'd give you a voucher for free weed Wow, um, so, uh, that's
0: that's incredible. I didn't I didn't realize the extent of just the the giving back side of things. Not just being the largest dispensary at the time, and and obviously helping a thousand people a day uh, with whatever they were going through, but also having such a conscious plan around your giving back program. Beautiful.
1: Yes, I you know call me crazy, call me whatever you want to call me, but we gave out all of our profits to the community. Wow. We, we had to. Under the 215 framework, under Attorney General Jerry Brown, who then became governor, he developed a program that, Dictated that we had to be, we had to operate as a nonprofit. We couldn't get nonprofit five hundred one three c status from the feds, of course. But the state said, "Look, you have to operate as a nonprofit, and if you don't, we're going to enforce." Wow! So we took that very seriously. We're like Jerry Brown, Governor Moonbeam. Yes, we yeah. will take that seriously because. We like cherry brown. (laughs) And so we took it seriously. And that meant we developed programs when we had money left over from the sales of our cannabis, we, oh, wow, we get to whiteboard another program to give the money away. And so we we had lots of programs. We had free classes. People could learn about cannabis growing and we had support services and groups for seniors and for veterans and for people suffering from cancer. And Mm -hmm. so it was real community center. Uh, We were able to 215 framework, for those of us that were so inclined (laughs) uh, to give our money away, we did. There were a lot of people people who, you know, sort of didn't embrace the nonprofit the way we did and sort of managed to <laughs> create management companies or whatever. And they would move the profits, you know, into the management entity and play, you know, those sorts of games. We ran our own company. We didn't need a management company. Right. We ran. I went in there every day and I, I worked with the team and set the expectations and, and managed and coached up. And that's how we did it. Yeah. Um, I, my background in the theater, you know, the theater is a collaborative art form. You've got all kinds of, you've got designers and you've got money people who are getting grants and Mm -hmm. you've got costume people and lighting people and makeup people. And you've got dramaturgs that are studying the, you know, Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. giving you all the references to the Oxford English Dictionary yep, and yep. All, all that sort of stuff, right? And so it's really, you have to get good at working with all these different groups of people,
3: yeah.
1: all with different backgrounds, all with different personalities and all and very diverse. At that time, when I was coming up, the American theater was dominated by LGBTQ community. Yeah. So the LGBTQ community was huge my acting school they were the teachers they were the professors they were the actors they were the designers they were they were the american theater and it was a very interesting time to be coming up in the american theater because we had the first gulf war started rodney king happened while i was in school and this convergence of the aids and cannabis activism happened while i was in school so all these converging and somewhat conflicting things were happening inside me while I was in school so we were <laughs> but as you mentioned you know I get to talk to you now and I get yeah. to do this thought leadership and my background just has allowed me an ease yeah and tra- I have a training I have training you yeah, know you have tra- most, that, most, yeah a lot of people in cannabis don't have formal, training like I did. And so it served me enormously well. And and now I I share that training and knowledge with others when they ask.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, it's important because, you know, I think I imagine to move legislation and to make really big impact, you need that training and you need to present I I imagine a particular way, it shouldn't be like that, but unfortunately it probably is where if you're going to go into a boardroom and you know that you can play any role that you need to knowing who you're speaking to. I I always like to call that style flexing. It's like you are who you are, you're yourself, but you understand who you're talking to and how the best way to communicate with them in a way that is going to land, how it's going to land. That's a gift. It's a no,
1: I, I mean, you're absolutely right. We're in the business of connecting knowledge and people and experiences together. That's, yeah. that's what we do as storytellers. And until for a long time, we the activists were the ones in front of the camera beating our chest and talking about yeah. individual rights and and it didn't work. Yeah, it did not work. And it may have worked for our egos because we got to be on the news, but it didn't move the public. And without moving the public, we're stuck. You know, you can't end prohibition without moving the public to get them to vote to end prohibition. Right. And so when Dennis started putting sick people in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. people in wheelchairs, people dying, yeah. That's when the storytelling got supercharged and we all realized, "Whoa." Yeah. We were doing it wrong, man. We had the wrong protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> and once we got the right protagonist in front of the camera, then our antagonist, Prohibition, was able to be seen in the true light, the true evil light that it is. Yeah. And the people, the normal everyday people who didn't have cannabis in their life, didn't want cannabis in their life, were compelled to vote for it. And that was the game changer. That was the learning that we needed to do as activists. And we had to get over ourselves yeah. and we had to celebrate our community.
0: I mean, look, no, no accidents, right? You needed to first to just to see the, the fucking passion, the passion, the outrage that this is not available. Because, you know, I, I feel that honestly with myself uh, around psychedelics, I have a very similar feeling of like, to me, the biggest crime is that people, adults don't have at least a choice, you know, with a proper education and whatnot, just know yeah. what it's done for me. But as yeah. I think about when I was putting together a trip on this, you know, a big part for me was like, I don't think I necessarily looked the part of somebody who you wouldn't just see me walking down the street. I'm, I'm, you know, very glam half the time and I'm from LA. And you know, if you had a stereotype of like a typical hippie, right, then I'm throwing that, but that's the point. The point yes. is that that is one small fraction. And by the way, great Lo- I love the hippie movement, love it, but like that's, I feel like I embody it at my core, but that's not how I present, I guess. And so many of my guests, it was important to me to highlight all a range of different types of people, so unassuming, you would never know. That these people have their lives have fucking changed from their psychedelic experiences and what it has done for them on their spirituality or their self-confidence or any of these things. And to me, like that was the importance of starting this was like for people that have only had the hippie in mind that have only been. stuck in the 1960s counterculture that there was another there's another way there's another way to look at it you know all the all the propaganda that's not real it's it's not real necessarily like yes be careful and of course we'll educate but Wow. You know, it's been given a big disservice, just like cannabis and cannabis led the way.
1: Well, yes. And, you know, we're talking about access, safe access and widespread access to these compounds. Yeah. That's what the movement part of this is. Mm -hmm. Now, we are now also an industry. And so it complicates things (laughs) uh, whenever there's commerce involved in (laughs) activism, complicates things, right? Because we have a commercial aspect to what we do and you know all the motivating and all the positive and negatives that are involved in transactions we live in a transactional world and i think we all can notice that it's gotten a little out of hand with the transactions we need to balance humanity again we need to get back into something other than transactions all the time yep and and that this people call it work life balance. I just call it being a whole human being. Yeah,
0: yeah, conscious living. Cons- Consciousness like, for everyone. And I,
1: you know, I have to do transactions all day long. I'm a consultant. I'm a strategic advisor. I'm I'm helping people build their cannabis businesses. It's stressful. You know, transactions are. By their nature, stressful. Yeah. (laughs) So, whereas the community work and the nonprofit work, whether it be a cannabis company that's a nonprofit, or whether it be something like the Last Prisoner Project, my nonprofit, Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter what the thing is that we're all doing because we all we all have different areas we work in, but that the movement is growing. Yep. That people from different walks of life like yourself are coming into this. We're rebranding cannabis and psychedelics right now. We're involved in a a, a global rebranding yes. of of these plants and compounds. Michael Pollan book How to Change Your Mind. Oh, great book. Huge step in that direction. Yes. The first mainstream thinker, right? The first mainstream writer thinker from the food industry and from, science
0: science oriented like give me the yeah, facts.
1: Hyper- science oriented and and not just science but also a dreamer and you know you write a book like the botany of desire that's a creative exercise that's like okay tulips apples and weed have these three plants have managed to spread themselves all over the world and get thousands if not millions of human beings to do nothing but work for them (laughs) yep
3: yep yep yep
1: (laughs) Who's in charge here? Right, right. Um, um, Becomes a question that Mm -hmm. those of us who who love this work, how do you not ask yourself that? Yeah. So so we're in this rebranding right now. I'm super thrilled that thinkers and cultural engineers from Los Angeles, the great cultural engineer function in our society is Los Angeles. Yep, yep. And, you know, Hollywood is kind of slow getting on this thing. Honestly, Hollywood needs to get more people like you in front of the camera talking about this. They're still sort of fascinated with sort of the counterculture hippie sort of want to get people all worked up about that. And and we're, we're past that. We're, yeah. we're past that, you know, the, what happened to the branding of cannabis and psychedelics in the sixties. And then, you know, Richard Nixon declaring war on all of these compounds and putting them on the schedule one
2: mm-hmm. uh, the
1: controlled substances act in 1972, the controlled substances act was basically prohibition on steroids. We already had prohibition. Yeah. They didn't need any more prohibition, yeah. but by golly, they piled a whole bunch of more prohibition. They sure did. Uh, that prohibition they already had. So you had your piss test and you had, you know, you were ostracized from society and you were labeled a hippie and, you know, all of this. And, and you, and you, you were told that you were bad and that you weren't contributing to society and that you were a suck on society and you weren't actually doing anything to contribute. And and that couldn't have been more wrong and false, that yeah. narrative. Uh, and uh, we hippies, <laughs> Mm -hmm. we hippies have made a tremendous contribution also people of color who've worked with these compounds and particularly cannabis more than the psychedelics of course Mm -hmm. but these folks did the time yeah we we did the time we collected the signatures the suits didn't do that the suits didn't get this stuff on the ballot in some places like colorado it was a little bit more the suits but it was still very activist driven driven by the law profession and legal minds and That's how you change laws with lawyers. <laughs> yeah um, so we did that work and we paid the price and we made the sacrifice and now those of us who are able to sort of bridge more than one world like myself our our job now is to get all of these groups talking together and collaborating together we have to improve the legal frameworks all, pretty much everywhere they're bad and they empower big corporations and they don't empower people of color they don't empower small businesses they don't empower legacy people like me. And if we don't get these folks in the legal market, we're going to be competing with them in the underground market. And and we will not win. We will not win. It is an act of mutually assured destruction. Mm -hmm. So the stoners are winning. 75% of all the transactions in California happen in the underground economy. It's a disaster.
0: 75%?
1: 75%. And it was 80% Four years ago, we've managed to crawl five percent back. Wow, seventy-five um, percent underground.
0: You're saying underground, underground. Yes. Oh my! Wow, means- I did not realize that.
1: Mm-hmm. And that and Colorado, Colorado's doing a little bit better with respect to the underground market because they didn't have as long a tradition of underground markets that we did in California, uh, yeah. particularly the Emerald Triangle. So we all this rebranding is super critical, and um, yeah. we need. The Michael Ponds of the world and yeah. the cats of the world and all of these different with the soccer moms of the world yeah. the, senior citizens of the world. Michael Pollan is, you know, yeah. an elder, you know, he's not a senior, I don't think, but he's an elder. And these, these elders play a very important role yes, they do. in passing, in rediscovering cannabis in a super legitimate way, mm-hmm. like, and with a lot of credibility, like Michael Pollan did. Yep. with book, And we need more yeah. books like that. We need more Rick Doblins from
3: you
1: Yes. Maps.org, your listeners should go on that website as oh, soon yeah. as they're done listening to this and check it out if they haven't already. So the Rick Doblins of the world and the Michael Pollins of the world are the thought leaders yep. that are the head of the spear yes. right now. And,
0: and the perfect, again, coming back to breaking stereotypes, they're exactly the faces that look like businessmen. You know, they've got that legitimate, the legitimacy that because their background has just always been in, I don't want to say by the book, I, you know, I'll say this. I don't know Rick's background. I know all of his work for MAPS, but what he was doing before, I can't, I can't quite, I I can't quite say that, but just it's their delivery and the science and the vision and the clear eyedness around all the safety around it and what it needs. It's just, everybody's talking the right language. And at the end of the day, it's about help. People need help.
1: Yes. How, I you mean, we're in a reduce- mental
0: health crisis right now. What in the yeah. world? <laughs> yeah. Look, alcohol doesn't help
1: funerals. it. I, yeah, I've gone to a lot of funerals. Yeah. It started with my family. My mother's side of the family were undone by the bottle. Mm-hmm. All my aunts and uncles, almost all of my aunts and uncles were undone by the bottle. And both my grandparents were undone by the bottle. I'm sad that they didn't have these plants yeah. available to them because I had to be raised in the midst of a lot of dysfunction. And I learned that's why I'm on this Cali sober rant that you've probably seen me uh, write about.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it by the way, which we're could let's talk
1: about it. I mean, we need a different yeah, we need different definitions of sobriety. The the binary, you're either totally sober or you're a complete drug addict. That binary definition just doesn't work for no. a whole lot of people. No. For some people, it does work. Yeah. All right. For some people, they need to be in total recovery from all intoxicants. And that's what works for some people. Could you um,
0: define Cali Sober for those listening that have never heard of that term? Can you first tell us what does it mean to you? And then let's now talk about it. But before, just so people at home are like, what's Cali Sober?
1: Well, the operating system known as Cali Sober that I talk about, our goal is to reduce the number of funerals we go to yeah. um, with respect to alcohol or hard drugs. So 100,000 Americans die every year from alcoholism and about 80 8,000 died last year from opioids. Wow. And then you have untold millions that are strung out, terribly strung out on both booze and these hard drugs, whether they be pharmaceutical or street drugs. Yeah. They're hard drugs. Yep. That have a big impact on your physiology. Oh, yeah. And I want to stop going to funerals, man. Uh, I want to stop going to funerals. So Cali Sober is another way for us to talk about psychedelics and cannabis and integrating these compounds under a new definition of sobriety. Mm -hmm. So Cali sober means you don't drink at all or very little. Mm -hmm. Like I have one glass that my my wife likes to drink wine. So I have like one glass a month. Like yesterday was a beautiful sunny day spring day here in Oakland, got in the backyard, had like this much rose. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. Yeah. Right. Now, alcohol has bad effects on my body, so I can't really take that much of it. But every once a month or so, I like to connect with my wife. It's a beautiful day. I take a little bit of the uh, rose. I can't take much more than that because I start to have negative physiological effects from it. So. My body just doesn't like it. And maybe it was because I went to all those funerals as I was a kid and my brain chemistry got affected by that. But I just don't. Connect with alcohol.
0: Your your body thanks you. There's uh there's no reason to like alcohol in in terms yeah. of like there's no like physiological upside, I don't think, for anyone. Maybe I guess was it was uh, a little what's the compound in red wine? Is Evitrol or I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, right,
1: right. Something like that. But for, for the most part, right. I
0: don't know that anybody's I don't think I think your body's like, Thank you so much.
1: Well, yes, and uh, many pe- people have that same experience with alcohol and maybe pharmaceuticals, and maybe even street drugs and we've had to figure it out on our own as you mentioned there's just not a lot of good education on this yeah uh, there is you know i'm kind of late to the cali sober party i'm sort of carrying this banner now because i think the new generation of thinkers from your generation coined the term cali sober
0: yeah how about i just i'm, I'm gonna totally like out myself when i spoke with zoe she's like we're gonna talk about cali like we were talking she was talking about cali sober with me and i was like uh what And I totally just realized that this was a term and I actually fall into it now a little bit as well, but I'll talk about that after, but talk about late, even though I'm the one coining it or my generation. I just found yeah. Out, so. Well, look, there
1: is a new generation of psychedelic and cannabis thinkers, yeah. and it's a big, big generation. Both the millennial generation and the Z generation are large in numbers. There's just a lot of them. Yeah, it's a big generation, kind of the same size as the baby boomers. Yeah, I'm in a small generation. Gen X is relatively yep. small. We're, we're the baloney in the. <laughs> in the, in the sandwich, you guys right? are small. Um,
3: my my, both uh, my Or the
1: tofu nice. baloney. <laughs> yeah. You could say you're caught talking about Cali-sober. Yeah, but and so Cali-sober, you don't take a lot of alcohol, if at all. And you're you're staying away from hard drugs and pharmaceuticals for the most part. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have a health condition that requires us to interact with pharmaceuticals. And when we need that, those single molecule compounds can be very helpful. Yeah. In certain situations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but w- what we're excited about is the whole plant formulations of psychedelics and cannabis and how it interacts with our endocannabinoid system or just our brain. How to change your mind is about the brain and what happens when we're tripping to the brain and all those wonderful neuro connectors and neuro pathways that connect under the psychedelic compounds. We're learning is extremely beneficial to your brain, everybody. It's good for your brain. Yeah. Um, The science is still very new. So we have a lot we still need to learn. Yep. But Rick Doblin, just circle back to him. He's an academic, so Rick was already an academic, and then he tripped on MDMA for the first time. Yep. with his partner, and he went, "Whoa, yeah, that'll this do it. Compound, <laughs> yeah, this compound is doing something." Yeah, to my empathy. It's my empathy is completely changing under this compound. I mean, a complete transformation. Yep of empathy. And Rick saw great potential in that, particularly when he had his first experience. Again, 1980s, war on drugs. Yep. Little Nancy Reagan, very effective drug warriors. They were good at their job. And we weren't, frankly. Dennis was the pioneer that got us to get good at it. Yeah. But up until that point, we were not good at it. Mm -hmm. And Rick Doblin took the mantle. He's like, nobody's working with these compounds. They have this terrible branding from the 60s. I'm going to change it. I'm going to devote my entire life. Again, a plant or a compound co-opting somebody's entire life and career. But he did. And so he's done the work for yeah. the last 30 plus years and for me maps and rick doblin are the main thought leaders michael Pollan certainly in there we have a bunch of others now sure but the the waters are getting a little muddied with the publicly traded cannabis companies now yeah. and and sort of the transactional component
2: mm-hmm. of
1: psychedelics sort of rearing their head yep. is it an ugly head or is it a rainbow colored beautiful head i don't know yet yeah but the i Idea, of course. And when I asked Rick about this, I said, Rick, man, is this a good thing that these publicly traded companies are, they don't seem to be learning the lesson from cannabis at all? And he said, I'm not worried about them. Yes, it's not ideal. I would prefer nonprofit models, uh, but the nonprofit models will compete with the for-profit models. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's going to be these community trip centers. Now, we've had an enormously hard time getting communities and NIMBYism with cannabis dispensaries done. Yep. Even in California, 60% of the communities in California have banned dispensaries. So, and, and, and we're talking about Cannabis, not psychedelic trip centers, right? So I can just imagine the NIMBYism that's going to occur when somebody goes to a city council meeting with an ordinance saying we're going to license psychedelic trip centers in our community. Wow. I think the NIMBYs are going to be extremely aroused.
3: Yeah,
0: Sorry, cannabis. when you say well, when you say NIMBYs, what do you what are you referring to? Not in my backyard. Not in my
1: backyard. <laughs> not in my backyard.
0: Oh man, they need to trip even more. Yes. If only.
1: And and we've had this terrible problem with cannabis dispensaries where communities not in my backyard. You legalization people, you're going to have to find some other community. Not in my backyard. Wow. So, and it's been a real problem even a, in a progressive state. Now, California is complex. We have conservative parts of the state that vote Republican and Yep. even Trump. Um, and we have very liberal and progressive parts of the state that, you know, are borderline anarchists.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, and everything in between those, we are a village out here in California. Yes, and if anybody's going to figure out how to get this village to get along with each other, it's California. And I think the Cali-sober methodology, the Cali-sober, I don't know, the Cali-sober creed, I think could play a really important role all. Oh in bringing these in reducing NIMBYism yeah. because the way we, we reduce NIMBYism is we get the NIMBYs <laughs> in a relationship with these plants
0: yeah I think that's okay. where that's where the, all of right? these conversations and mental health and depression and eventually like look NIMBYs also probably need help at the end yes. of the day right so there's gonna <laughs> hopefully there's a a tipping point for them and what I was gonna say particularly in your article the article you wrote in Playboy I want to get her name I wrote it down own, jackie bryant she yeah. had michelle
1: michelle also michelle luke yeah um,
0: so jackie had particularly you had quoted her saying that for her it was her cali sober lifestyle was an additive for her life as opposed to a either a numbing or addictive lifestyle and for yeah. me personally i actually just came out with a video today that i put on my youtube and it's all about cocaine and i used to do far too much uh blow in like my, my mid-20s and i'm 35 now and i was deeply unhappy though you know and i talk about that and it's not the the video was not at all about judgment or anything i'm just talking about because i talk about substances but yeah. it, what it really comes down to for me was this aspect of i'm like alcohol and uh things and probably even more socially acceptable more predominant like coke is considered social and it's out there but i'm like it is a numbing agent it is that is literally what it's doing if you ever put it on your teeth it numbs you and it numbs your whole body and i think it's saying a lot about probably a bigger issue right it's a this is it's a reflection of, um, I think the deep unhappiness, unfortunately, that so many people are facing out there because between opioids, alcohol, and coke, which are the most prevalent to me, those are the three that numb you. That They take you out really? of the current circumstance. And to get back into plants and other substances, look, I'm, I, I think LSD and MDMA are also great. Like, I'm not going to just say it's just about magic mushrooms. You know, there's a big push towards magic mushrooms. They're natural. Great. But to me, that is enhancing life. It is connecting you deeply within. Yes, sometimes that's tough when you've got stuff to deal with. But look, the monster under your bed isn't going anywhere until you look at it, until you shine the light and see and you look under there and you see you got to You got to see that there's no monster in your bed or you have to look at it before it goes away. It's just going to haunt you and you're going to numb yourself until you look at it. And I think hopefully as hopefully as people want to choose healing as opposed to numbing, we get closer and closer to psychedelics and cannabis where it's getting you in touch with you as opposed to taking you out of your body
1: yeah i thought that was an incredible insight that jackie shared with me that's why i just had to put the quote in the article because it's it really is the essence of the cali sober creed is look you're not 100 sober you take cannabis maybe on the daily yeah that's not if you go to american psychology psychology association definition of sobriety it's not taking weed every day right so it's in fact i would be considered an addict under the american psychology association's definition of mm-hmm. addiction with respect to cannabis mm-hmm. i'm not addicted to cannabis yeah yeah <laughs> but i take cannabis every day so i'm like you know i have these long debates with my shrink about when <laughs> What addiction is, and what consciousness is, and we're in that work together, and yeah. um, trying to trying to find common ground. The fact of the matter is, human science doesn't know anything about consciousness. We do not know why we're conscious beings. Right. We do not know why that happens in the brain. We do not understand it at all. Yeah, and yet we fancy ourselves super scientifically advanced as a human race. But when it comes to the thing we experience every single moment of our very limited lifespans, we know nothing about it.
0: Yeah, I was just watching, I was, sorry, listening to a podcast on Mindscape, Sean Carroll's Mindscape. I love it getting sciency. And he was talking, they were talking just about this. Uh, It was a neuroscientist on and he was saying, we are so limited because we, our brain is studying our brain like there's no other yes. trying to understand right. ourselves objectively but we are ourselves and so right. it's inherently and then and then the idea of like is consciousness separate than the brain i mean i personally as a spiritual person do believe our consciousness is a our consciousness is lives on but that's not again that's not as obviously a scientific thing that's just a cat's spiritual life thing but it's just all of these different ideas of yeah we don't psychedelics are really showing that because they're going like we don't it's really highlighting the the conversation about consciousness and going like what is happening why why are so many people having mystical experiences like that like these noetic qualities and meeting entities like what is what is happening here
1: right well pollen talks about that in his book in fact the, the reason he did Decided to embed himself with psychedelics and actually do the compounds himself. Mm-hmm. He was after that. Yeah. That experience, that I don't know, religious experience or spiritual mm-hmm. experience or mystical. I yeah. think he, he used the word term mystical. Mm-hmm. He used the word mystical experience. Yeah. And we have a long history of shamans and, and sh- shamanic people in our, uh, there's always shamans in human, yeah. no matter what era of human time you live in, thousands of years ago, there were shamans yeah. that were dealing with these compounds in your society, it might have had to be a native society, not White people's society, yeah. but they, they were there. Yeah. Okay. And white people like Terrence McKenna went and found it, they went and found it and experienced it and embedded it, And they yeah. went after that mystical experience. Pollen didn't really find it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did did. not find it.
0: I thought, I mean, I thought he said when he did 5 MEO DMT, I thought he describes. Okay, here's what he says. He goes, It's a mystical experience because I can't tell you what happened to me. But his scientific mind is the aspect of him who's lived a long time being like very like proof is in the pudding, like let me see the sign. Like he's not, which is perfect. This is why he was such a perfect person, right? To do this. Like, Somebody like me... It's, I'm, you already kind of know, like I'm tipping, I'm not trying to be the scientist. I'm telling you just like how, how I think of things, but him being really on the like science based, less Mm -hmm. about consciousness living on and eternal life and all that. He, he basically says like, I don't, I think it ends with a basically an, I don't know. Like I know something mystical happens to me, but I'm not going to attach what I think it could be is what I think he ultimately landed on, which is totally, I, I think props. Like that's great. Like you could just say, I don't know what that. I, what just happened, and that's okay, and I'm okay with that.
1: I read a great interview of Jerry Garcia, frontman from the Grateful Dead, who's long dead now. But real words of wisdom from Jerry in this interview, where he talks about he was in a coma. You know, he was a terrible opioid mm-hmm. addict. Uh, unfortunately, Jerry was unable to overcome those those addictions, but he went into a coma for a period of time and he describes the experience of being in his brain under the coma and you know there were these bugs and all these weird creatures in his brain and they were interacting with him and he could not quite figure out what was going on it did feel like dmt to him but it was it lasted for days and i can imagine that being a challenging mental experience for, for jerry And when he came out of that and he sort of regained his baseline consciousness, I guess you you could say, the interviewer asked him, well, what happens to consciousness when we die? And Jerry thought, well, I think it dies when we die, was his viewpoint. Yeah. And, you know, Jerry had done a lot of psychedelics and other compounds in his life. So that was what he had learned. Some of us have a different experience in our learning under the influence of psychedelics and have a more connected experience but what i'm agnostic on is okay i don't have my five senses anymore yep. so what is the experience of consciousness without the five senses yeah and that's where I'm very curious. Yeah. I mean <laughs> and we will all find out.
0: We will all I mean like that's that's the greatest thing is like I always stay in the place I'm like I, and and ultimately nobody knows nobody like it's one of those it's it is the greatest mystery of all of of life is death. That is right. the number 1. And just coming back to that like how can we make then not knowing what's next? How can we make this the most joyous, happy, loving time on this planet? And if there are things out there that can help us, we need to get rid of arbitrary laws that are allowing for somebody to, I'm all for, I'm not, look, I'm not talking about prohibition on alcohol. Adults should make their own decision. Hopefully they choose another way. But ultimately I'm like anything to, there's so much more that we're discovering that I'm like to tap real joy and real healing. And that is, To me, that is the most important part. I can't believe anybody would tell me that I'm not allowed to have my own pursuit of happiness if I'm not hurting anyone. You know, I'm growing. This podcast started because of profound changes from psychedelics for myself and for somebody to tell me that like that's bad and that shouldn't be i'm like wow we're we're really we're really missing we're really missing it and that's why i think that's why i think it's going in this direction and i don't think it's stopping for cannabis and psychedelics i don't think it's stopping
1: no i think the genius at long last out of the bottle yeah. and it would be very hard for the drug warriors to put it back in now we're doing a good job
0: yeah yeah we're kind of Uh, keeping it together i put makeup on today i'm not yelling in the camera like okay i I kind of get passionate but i try to keep it
1: (laughs) one of the things psychedelics teaches us is to lighten up a little bit yeah and not take ourselves so seriously. One of the things that Michael Pollan experienced under psychedelic, it wasn't quite mystical for him, but he was able to experience the dissolution of his ego yep. or the dissolving of his ego. Yep. He was able to observe his ego from that objective place Yeah, and he saw enormous value in stepping out of our ego and taking a look at it from that objective self point. Now, we don't know what the objective self is. Again, we don't know a whole lot about consciousness, but it does seem to us as we experience consciousness that we have some kind of self and then we have aspects or parts of ourselves. Some people call them parts, some people call them aspects. And then, But there's this, call it a true self,
0: Yeah, a steadiness, something observing the the self, something that's watching.
1: Yeah, like when we take meditation, one of the things the meditators teach you is you are not your thoughts. Yeah. And you are not your feelings. Right. You have thoughts. And you have feelings; those are two of the building blocks of consciousness. But you know, <laughs> there's a lot of other building blocks too. Yeah. So we are not our—we know from the meditation and the mystics that we are not our thoughts and we are not our emotions. It begs the question: Then what are we?
0: Right. That is <laughs> that is the question that I think we're going to continue on and on and on.
1: What, what what psychedelics have taught me is that human beings are these very fragile creatures. We all struggle to be true to ourselves and true to our families and true to our communities. We fail. We fail a lot. We're very fallible. And it has taught me to be humble. And it has taught me that I don't have a monopoly on the truth and I don't have a monopoly on exactly the ideology that's going to work to solve humanity's problems so we can stick around on this planet. Mm -hmm. The planet is going to be fine. Yeah. (laughs) The question is, are we still going to be walking upon the earth?
3: Right.
0: It's and, and I've got my Earth Day shirt. It's perfect. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and that's what psychedelics taught me is to approach the fragility of life, but also the life force, which is miraculous. Yes. Which is a miracle. Yes. Which And this thing that we call consciousness that we don't understand is a miracle. It is a miracle. Of creation.
0: Yeah, no, it is a straight up miracle. And when you can walk around with that gratitude and, and understand like, this is fucking insane what we get to do. Like this yeah. is incredible. Yeah, start- that's
1: the that's the psychedelic revolution. It's that's what's underneath all the tripping, I think. Yeah. is, is like, whoa, we're not as smart as we think we are. Yep. We need to be humble yep. and we need to take care of each other. Yeah. And, and taking care of each other is just as important perhaps more important than taking care of the self. I always say I can't help others if I'm not also helping myself. I I can't be in a good relationship with others with respect to these plants. If I'm not also in a good relationship myself, that's why Rick Doblin, he actually does psychedelics. Michael Pollan, they actually do psychedelics. A lot of the scientists that are working with these compounds in the laboratory perhaps in a publicly traded company, perhaps not, don't take the compounds themselves. Yeah. They don't actually trip.
0: Which is, and- I hope I hope the trip sitters though, I hope the people that administer psychedelics to people have taken their own stash because I'm like, it is impossible. You can think like, oh, okay, you've seen like colors and things and I could talk about it. I can have a guests on talking about their psychedelic experience, but you will never understand a true psychedelic experience until you have it so you understand what that feels like so that when if you're going to help people in a state especially if it gets a little challenging for them i to just have a textbook to talk to them without knowing is such a disadvantage and i really hope it's you know i don't want to say a requirement but kind of i don't want to i wouldn't i mean like i wouldn't go to trips there at this point anyway but just because i've i've I tripped a lot. My trip sitters are probably friends at this point. But yeah, I would want to know that I've been like a shaman, you know, like in that same way. Like I want to know that you've you've been in this and that you yeah. can talk to me about I, think
1: it, I think it's enormously helpful and beneficial to the therapist to have these experiences. Yep. But I also think that a good therapist can administer a trip without the experience with just really good training. I do believe that that's possible because it's the patient's trip at the end of the day, not not our trip. And I babysit a lot of people tripping in my life. Being a good trip guide and trip sitter is part of the work. Yeah. and that, and we all have to do that for our friends and family and yep. communities and you sit with people and when you sit with people you discover there are some common things that happen and you can coach Along those common experiences and those common threads. Sure. So I definitely I, I think it's possible. Experience...
0: I definitely think it's possible. I just yeah. think that yeah. Look, there's just it's just a difference between uh, having knowing it and reading
1: it.
2: Knowing.
0: I think it, you're,
1: you're plugged in a lot more. I yeah. think you're plugged in a lot more. And I would certainly want to be a therapist who has done these compounds. Yeah. Myself, but I imagine there's going to be quite a few that don't. And... Yeah.
0: And there's and there's. Sorry to interrupt you. There's a way, uh, Stangroff. Are you familiar with him? I think he was actually in Michael Pollan's book. They talked about the hol- yeah, the holotropic breath breathwork, psychedelic. Yeah. That's what's used for the Zendo project, which is basically they call like yep. the freak out tense at uh music festivals. But basically that's how they've been training
2: mm-hmm.
0: them to basically put them into a psychedelic state through breathwork to somewhat elicit the feeling. Yeah. So like, I know that there's, there's definitely ways.
1: Yeah, it works. It works. Look, the ancient teachers have shown us there's more than one doorway into this yeah there's more than one doorway what psychedelics provide is it's not just a doorway it's like hyperspace into this world (laughs) and where and a book just doesn't do it I mean a book you can study you can read every study and every science paper about psychedelics it still is not going to get you into a hyperspace relationship with that part of the brain. Right. Whereas the actual psychedelics themselves do that. And that's yeah. what Pollen thought was so valuable. It was like, well, we've got seven, people built, 7 billion people on earth most of them have not tripped. Uh, most of them have not taken cannabis. Most of them don't have safe and widespread access to these compounds. Yeah. And that's our work. It's probably going to take a generation to get that done. I hope it's just a generation, not a lifetime. Yeah. But, and it's going to take a generation. It's going to yeah. take people like you and people like me talking about this every single day, yep. probably for a generation. And then we'll know that our work is moving along nicely when the NIMBYism <laughs> yeah. on the trip centers goes down. The way we change the minds of the NIMBYs is to change their hearts. Yeah. And everybody knows somebody who's depressed. Everybody knows somebody who's anxious. I have terrible problems with insomnia. I take a lot of cannabis. I take a lot of natural plants. I take a lot of herbs. I take psychedelics. Still have problems with insomnia, Yeah. terrible terrible for insomnia. We're all on a journey of wellness and health. Yes. And that's why I think all all use of these compounds is medical for me. But that's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to change people is, yeah. is through the heart, not not through the mind. We've already, the science is there enough already to yeah. change the rational mind and the rational mind's not getting changed. The way we change the rational mind is it's this strange way humans are wired, right? We can't get it through our thick heads yeah. until we get it through our soft hearts yeah <laughs> and we need to do that with psychedelics as well and i think you know the people you know that have depression the people that you know have insomnia like me yeah the people you know that their nervous system is fragile they experience yeah. a lot of anxiety and stress this can help yeah this can help a lot of people and, are and, afraid
3: and- of
0: their hearts feeling
1: They are. Okay. It's easier to take the antidepressant. It's that's also part of the
0: challenge. It's holistic. It's a holistic, like, yeah, your mind has to wrap yourself. You have to, there has to be a desire. One of the ways to have the courage to be heart centered. It takes courage to feel. It really does. It is a lot easier to them. It's a lot easier, but there is so much potential. And I think we are going to get there. The change of the hearts, because once you, once you just decide to take your life back into your own hands in whatever way that is, you know, I'm not saying that it's just through psychedelics or cannabis, but that's where the magic starts. It's where it starts.
1: Right. And that takes us back to Cali sober because we need, we need new ways of thinking. We need new definitions. We need new titles for new books. Yep. And most people who, take antidepressants or numbing agents. They're just trying to function. Yeah. They're just trying to sleep so they can wake up and go to work the next day and provide yeah. for their families. They're just trying to function. Yeah. And single molecule pharmaceuticals are basically designed to solve functional problems in society. Yeah. And, and so that's that's the method that we have sort of a bias mm-hmm. towards. Mm-hmm.
0: The survive that model, I- not the thrive model. Survive model? Thrive model. The
1: survive model, not the thrive model. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the revolution or the renaissance, I think my brother's term renaissance is better than revolution because revolution can be hard and violent. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what we're talking about is not that. (laughs) But we are talking about, people voluntarily changing themselves, like yeah. Mike changing their mind, like yeah. Michael Pollan did. And yes, you have to go inward. And yes, you have to face hard things because we're all recovering from trauma. We all had to survive our childhoods. Yeah. And it wasn't, and maybe our parents weren't bad or abusive people, but they just didn't know how to be parents in every single way that people need to know how to be parents. Yeah. And so you experienced a little bit of trauma growing up. Yeah. I had to go to a lot of funerals because my relatives were alcoholics yeah well i had a big impact on me man that has a big impact on you when you're yeah, a little kid it sure does and it it hit my heart before i even had the mind developed yeah to understand to understand what addiction i was eight year old kids six year old kid seven year old kid yeah. i don't know what addiction is yeah. i see it around me in my family i see people that are dysfunctional it has an impact on me as a kid but I don't know rationally what's going on, but I know, I know in my heart what's going on and I know intuitively what's going on. And I think that people who are depressed or dealing with mental health issues or overcoming their traumas they experienced in their lives need to go into these feelings, not numb them. Yes. And it's hard. It's painful. Okay. I, I, I have a shrink. I go once a week. I do the work. Yeah. I end up going through the birth canal and a blubbering mess, you yeah. know, by the end, because I'm I'm trying to tap into something emotional yeah. inside of me. It's not rational, it's not to, intellectual. You have to it doesn't have happen.
0: yeah, you have to take out the charge. Yeah. I you know, the the way that I've really gotten past the things that have been difficult in my life is exactly that is sitting in the pain and the discomfort of it until it's not supercharged anymore, until the feeling of it isn't either like a reaction like oh god let me push that thought away like oh my god like like i was just cooking and like i suddenly you know like until yeah until you sit with it and you can just be with it that's when it doesn't huh it doesn't then then you can go out and make decisions without without making decisions that are protecting you from whatever is in here You know, all the stuff that you're protecting yourself. So then you're you're making decisions to protect yourself. So you're not really open, you know, when you're saying like a whole person. And so it just, it's, it's exciting for all of us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We have our protectors that rear their heads when we're getting down into that vulnerable spot because we're not encouraged to be vulnerable in our culture. Yep. Quite the opposite. Yep. Especially men, right? Yeah. Um, You know, you listen to Joe Rogan, he talks a little bit about psychedelics but he talks a lot about nootropics and productivity and brain chemistry yes. and vitamins and supplements and, and they work. I take nootropics. I like yeah. them. They help me sleep, yeah. <laughs> but it's very macho. Right. And and being vulnerable to our feelings yeah. is not the way, is the way of something other than macho. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and, and that macho protector that comes out in all of us men, because we grew up in this culture. It's like, hold on, I'm strong. I can get through this. Give me the pill. I'm at work the next day killing it, man. Yeah, yeah, No problem. And and you know that attitude often leads to people having a heart attack when they're 45 years old in a high-stress corporate job. Yeah. uh, Because they took the pill and the drink instead of the joint and the psychedelics. And it was hard. I mean, it's hard work. You know, my brother died when I was a two-year-old infant. And he didn't die from alcohol or anything like that. He just died. He had a, a natural do- causes. He died. Wow. And that had, I still, when I'm cooking dinner, I'll have a moment where I think of my brother and I'll gear up. And this happened 50 years ago. Yeah. This happened 50 years ago. I've done probably 20 years of therapy. I still have moments like that. Yeah. I still have moments. that and it's hard for me not to merge with the feeling and I have to work I have to resource myself and use all the skills my therapists have taught me and my meditation teachers and all the rest and detach yep from that feeling and try to look at it yeah and it's sometimes I blend with the feeling and then I, I feel the tears coming don't we and, all? you know and that's part of being an empathetic person yeah. you know I had that empathy in me before I even took a psychedelic drug or cannabis I just had that There's one reason I gravitated to the performing arts I just had that yeah. natural empathy inside me I remember being a little kid and walking past homeless people, and feeling like I needed to help them. That they were, I was like, how could this be happening in our country? This is so terrible, and I need to help them. And I would talk to them, I'd give them money, and I'd get in all these codependent relationships <laughs> with homeless people that I'm trying to like help, yeah. but they're, they're like not able to receive my help. And you know, I, and I did, so I've had that. And, and there's some of us that just have that natural empathy. And it's hard for us because we feel things. It's we, good We feel though. things more it, it, deeply than others.
0: It's great hearing from, you know, especially from a man, like it's good for people to hear you. And to hear that and, you know, like that yeah. divine masculine. Well, there's probably a bunch
1: of guys saying, yeah, hippie. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, I think if they're saying that, then the hope is that they are taking a moment to just examine a natural, if like they had a natural thought like that, to potentially just have a moment to examine like is that programming is that conditioning it is the way that we've been taught I'm hoping that we continue as a society like you know and I think of like the divine masculine and feminine it, it's mm. it is about it's not about the macho control yes there is a, like, a level of like protection but it's in harmony with like the female energy of the intuition like they every person has both the divine masculine and feminine you know, when we are tipped one way or the other, where they're so subjectively in our emotions and things that we can't objectively see, right? Like that's where I think women can get very lost in that or the opposite. There's a lot of divine masculine women that are trying to be in that controlling because they're in a you know patriarchal world or whatnot, but to find balance within ourselves is the ultimate goal. I mean, balance as a whole is the goal. You know, men are incredibly intuitive. I just, I don't think anybody's ever told them they're intuitive. Everybody <laughs> is intuitive, but they're they're incredibly intuitive. That's not just a female thing. Men too. Everybody has incredible gifts that they don't, nobody ever told them they had them, so they don't think they do. But I'm like, okay, time to change that. You do, you know? And people that meditate yep. and are willing to, Feel what a leg up. You know, great businessmen are incredibly intuitive. Incredibly. At the end of the day, the traders and things, incredibly intuitive. They just are. They just don't call it that because it's not macho. But that's what it yeah, is. yes well... Yeah, I mean, I'm in a
1: point in the evolution of my career, my work, where I have the luxury of carrying the vulnerability, macho message to the world. Yeah, Most men don't have that luxury. Yeah. Most men are still trying to just put food on the table, provide for themselves. We men have a very strong connection to being providers. It's yeah. something that drives us. It's something that gives us meaning. Being a provider of our families and our communities is something that's given me a lot of meaning. I've provided for a lot of people in my life, and it's given me a lot of meaning. But then there's we're all wrapped up in sort of this macho culture that you so eloquently Describe And so if I, as a 50-year-old man, can open myself up publicly and talk about some of these vulnerabilities and some of this internal work I do, and it can maybe just motivate one other dude to do that, our men are in crisis right now. And it's, it's, it's crystal clear if you just read the news. Yeah. <laughs> the way we're in relationship with women, the way we're, we're in relationship with work, the way we're in relationship with money, the way we're in relationship with status, is all in crisis. And we need plants. We need need compounds to sort of break um, the paradigm apart. And then we're going to have to put it back together in a much different shape than it is now. So that's the promise of this work. That's why I talk about a generation that needs to change and why I'm so thrilled to talk about Cali Sober, which was really a term and a creed developed by a new generation of social engineers sort of building, standing on the shoulders of those of us that have come before. We're all standing on the shoulders of those sure. that have come before. I'm just trying to make my shoulders as strong as possible so that when folks like you stand upon them, you've got a nice strong footing and you can see Can see clearly.
0: Thank you. My my final question for you uh, before is just I want people to know a little bit about the work that you're doing with The Last Prisoner and where they can just what it is you're doing and where can they go? Where can they go to learn more about it and help if they want to help?
1: My favorite thing to talk about is The Last Prisoner Project. We have a wonderful website, lastprisonerproject.org. We have a get involved tab that teaches you as an individual how to get involved. And you don't, it's not just donating donating money we need lots of volunteers, especially lawyers, legal, yeah. paralegals, and um, we need we need people to write letters to our prisoners right now. So we have a, a letter writing program. Hmm. It's one of the most, it's one of the things you can do that makes you feel good. Yeah, Donating money to Last Prisoner Project makes you feel good. But when you write a letter to a prisoner and then that prisoner writes you back and you see and feel, more importantly, feel mm-hmm. how important your letter was to that human being. Who's locked up right now, and you instantly connect. And I challenge anyone not to stay in a pen pal relationship with that prisoner. I can't wait to do this. I can't wait.
0: I'm, to pal- can't wait. Yeah, I'm gonna I, be. I'm gonna be a pen pal
1: immediately. Yeah, that's totally fun, and it does take a little bit more time. But for those of you who have more time than resources, it's a great way to plug in. And you know, it's not about. You know, doing an Instagram post where you Yeah, show like look what I'm doing. With... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not about that. It's this very special relationship that you have with a prisoner, and it's a one-on-one thing. It's like yeah. like a poem and a and a writer of poetry. There's it's a very The poem is read by one person, written by one person. It's a very intimate moment, right? When the poem and the reader come together. Similarly, it's a very intimate moment when we connect all of these things into one holistic whole. Yeah. And, you know, this is a brave, I don't want to say brave new world because that book (laughs) is actually actually dystopian, not utopian. But we are. It's a renaissance that's happening right now with respect to these plants. And we're in the very beginning of that renaissance. And I'm going to keep at it. I know you're going to keep at it. And maybe one of your listeners or more than one of your listeners is going to be inspired by our talk today to do this work, too.
0: Andrew, what a talk. This was great. Thank you. It was so wonderful getting to know you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just, I'm going to link The Last Prisoner. I'm going to link your article for Callie Sober so people can just get their footing around it. And I'll just make sure-
1: If you want to link Jackie Bryan and Michelle Luke's article, Michelle wrote one for, that would be great too because they inspired my article.
0: No doubt. This was so much fun. Before we go, is there any last words that you'd like to share?
1: Well, we're emerging from the pandemic right now, and it's a very exciting time. And my words, don't let your guard down. Continue to practice safety. We all want to be out in the world. We all want to be hugging and kissing and, and being with each other in close proximity and sharing joints and dab rigs together. But mm-hmm. don't do it until we have <laughs> herd immunity, please. Yeah. And so that's that's my my big message right now i've been locked down for a year i you can tell i'm a retail leader i'm a leader that touches people and i need that human contact to be an effective leader it has been super hard one reason i'm not sleeping so good yeah it's just been such a hard year and as we reemerge don't lose sight of all the mindfulness that that we've been engaged with. It would be a real shame if you get COVID the two weeks before you get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go a whole year without getting it, and then you get it the last two weeks before you get the vaccine. (laughs) It's like, whoa, man, total fail. And I'm worried about that because I have to be in the world now as a consultant, and I have to go to farms, and I have to go to dispensaries, and I have to talk to people and visit with people. And you know, sometimes I'm seeing a little bit of complacency with respect to masks and things, you know, on a farm. Yep. Maybe you don't need the mask outside as much. I still want people to wear them mm-hmm. because I think that it sends a psychology a-, a message and it's helpful. And I think the science is pretty clear on it. So so that's my message. We're almost there, everybody. Don't don't let your guard down. Don't don't do s- don't compromise your judgment because you're so excited to connect
3: with people again. <laughs> Why see that? Yeah. Wise,
0: That's wise cool. words. Wise words. Andrew, thank you so much again, and for everyone watching and listening, as always, trip on this.